Cheers, queers. I'm going to level with you for a second. Like many of you, I also tend to skip ads. But you are going to want to hear what I'm about to say. High Density, produced by the Barista League, is a brand new coffee conference that's unlike any you've ever attended. Its program is free, 100% digital, and focuses on relevant and practical information that you can put to use immediately. The event, which takes place on March 9th, features an international program of speakers, including Gwillem Davies, Kat Melheim, Frida Yuan, Lem Butler, and Vava Ngweni. This event is a must attend in 2021. Register for free at www.thebaristaleague.com slash trans and caffeinated. This podcast is rooted in a singular dream. To aid our culture's growth by fostering collective education, encouraging open discussion, and most importantly, nurturing and inspiring new generations of my transgender siblings. Here's to a transer future. When is the last time you laid down on your bed with a sweet purring cat curled up on your chest, took a long, deep breath, and remembered to forget the world, if only for a moment? If your answer is never or I can't remember, then take a second, if you can, to do that right now. Pause this episode, take a deep breath in, take an even longer breath out. Ground yourself in this moment and remind yourself that it is okay to just be. This is what Mix Lex Pe'er Horwitz wants you to remember. That you are enough. That you are okay. That your understanding of yourself and your identity does not have to conform to some pre-scripted roadmap in order for your experiences and your self-knowledge to be valid. You are trans enough. You are queer enough. You are right where you need to be. A jack of many trades and equally gifted in all of them, Lex shares unique and often profound perspectives about gender and sexuality, transition, mental health, the magic of fur babies, and just life in general. Our conversation was every bit as thought-provoking and transformative as it was hopeful and warm. And you will walk away from this episode having learned something or multiple somethings or thinking about parts of the world in a whole new way. This episode mentions gender dysphoria, gender-based trauma, transphobia, homophobia, racism, depression, and suicide. A full transcript of this episode is now available at transencaffeinated.com slash transcripts. This is Mix Lex Pe'er Horwitz on dismantling the roadmaps of gender transition. Hi there. I'm here today with Mix Lex Pe'er Horwitz, who uses they, them pronouns. Among other things, Lex is an LGBTQ educator, activist, and model. 
Lex, why don't you kick us off by sharing a little bit about yourself? Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be a part of this conversation with you. And yeah, so my name is Lex and I am a queer, non-binary, transmasculine Jewish human with big femme energy. I am a passionate animal lover and cat enthusiast. And I I am located in Philadelphia. No, just a little bit about me. <laughs> uh, so you are joined today by one of your fur babies, uh, Sabu, who was, uh, before we started recording, purring. Oh my gosh. <laughs> she She's a talker. Miss Sabu, she will let me know when she's hungry, uh-huh. either purring loudly or truly talking to me. Anytime she gets excited, her little purrs truly like vibrate <laughs> the room, which is definitely what we were hearing. And that's so Sabu cute. and Miss Lady Tooth, they are both the loves of my life. They are the <laughs> lights of my soul. I do not know what I could possibly do without my two little children. I honestly spend more time on their healthcare and their <laughs> health needs than I do my own, which is something that we're working on because I deserve to do it myself too. Yes, you do. <laughs> um, but yeah, my my two fur babies are just like key and central to my to my life. And they're both senior kitties. They're both special needs. And I've been a part of animal welfare and humane education since before I've been doing my queer advocacy and education Truly, like, I understand it as as soon as I popped out the womb and I saw a cat, I was like, I relate and I will help you. Oh uh, <laughs> and I just really loved getting to do animal behavior work, getting to volunteer in shelters, and always saw that the senior animals, uh, the, the special needs animals, whether that was based off of health issues or truly just being different than other cats behaviorally, those animals were more likely to be euthanized, to not be adopted and not have a chance of finding their forever home. And so I, from a very young age, since before middle school, made it my life's mission to get as many senior special needs animals, particularly cats adopted. And as soon as I was legally able to adopt, started adopting senior special needs fur babies who are all a really important part of my life and my family many of whom have since passed away because of being senior special needs cats, which has been, I'm honestly constantly grieving from those losses because they really are my children. But I also would not want them not to be in my life simply because, of course, with life comes death. Yeah. And so I was so happy when little sad booby was on my lap, (laughs) burn away a storm. Now she's just drinking away at some water and is probably going to find herself a nice little pushed up part of my couch to sit on. (laughs) Amazing. I feel like people always say, oh, can you hear my cat purring through the phone? And usually I really can't, even though I'm sure it's loud. And I expected to have the same response when Sabu popped up on your lap earlier. And like, y'all, Sabu is loud. (laughs) She really, like she can wake up and sleep. She will let you know what she needs when she needs it. She is a very, very vocal senior special needs cat. Oh my gosh, yeah. She honestly communicates better with humans than with other cats. So that's one of her many special aspects of her just being. And also, I don't know if you can hear her, but she's like hitting away at the litter box in the back. <laughs> so she's just decided to be a part of this podcast episode. I, well, I... I... 
I've joked about this in other episodes, but I've been talking for a while now about starting like a spoof version of this podcast called Pets and Caffeinated, where I just interview trans people about their pets. It would really be everything. <laughs> everything. I, mean, I don't know what it is, but there is something about trans folks and queer folks and our fur babies that is just like unmatched. <laughs> that would be everything for the world. Because they just don't, they don't care. Like, especially, especially like earlier in folks' transition, like when that period of time where like it's really hard to, I mean, it's often hard to feel understood and feel seen by others, but especially in that really early period of time where we ourselves are like struggling to see ourselves as who we are and struggling to like figure out how to navigate the world as a trans person. And then we have these little fur babies who just literally, they don't even register anything about us. They just like see us genuinely for their loving humans or, you know, big cats, which is what I've heard they think we are. Um. Truly, truly. And on, that is such a, that is such a beautiful way of understanding it too, is just that the love that we get from our fur babes is not conditional love. Like it is just unconditional love. It isn't dependent on our identities or who we love or how we choose to present ourselves it's truly just based on, I love you because we support each other. Yeah. <laughs> I wish all love was like that. <laughs> it's, it's so wholesome. And they sometimes also know when I'm having a rough day. Like we, we have a cat named Puppy and Incredible. she, it, yeah, um, <laughs> it's because I call everything cute puppy. Um, it's it's a problem, but well, <laughs> not really, I guess, because now I have we now we have a cat named Puppy, so it's worked itself out. I love how that also just like messes with yes, a cat named Puppy. These words we <laughs> defined and decided for ourselves, and we can use them in whichever ways we want. Here. I want, yeah, right. I want to get a dog named Pony after I come back from my surgery. I just think it'll be perfect. Please do. <laughs> it is very much in part of my plan for after I come back to Chicago after bottom surgery to get a dog named Pony. I hope it's also a small dog. That is also part of the plan. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, messing with all the concepts and also so excited for you and your upcoming (laughs) gender affirming surgery that is beyond incredible. Thank you. Yeah, I'm, I'm so excited. People that have followed me on Instagram have seen me go through a very long process in deciding whether or not I wanted it. And I've ultimately come to a place of peace with the decision, which feels really, really major in my life. It was exciting. Yeah. Oh my gosh. It's so exciting. Also, because I know we both, we share so many parts of our identity. We we do. Which is incredible. I love to find other queer trans Jews. Yes. (laughs) And the fact that we're both identify with some aspect or form of non-binary identity. Yeah. And both also decided that for our own respective reasons that some form of medicalization was what we needed, would make us feel the most authentic and the most affirmed in our own bodies. And I think that that's commonly a narrative that isn't told or is almost erased or hidden because of this belief that there is a, quote, roadmap to trans trans enough. Or if you're a trans man, then it looks like X, Y to Z. If you're a trans woman following this linear path. And the truth is, is that regardless of if you're binary trans or non-binary trans, that medicalization, the legal aspect, the social changes are truly just tools available for us to use. And we don't have to use all of them, but we have the option to use them all. And so I just, this idea that non-binary people either don't medicalize their bodies because they aren't binary enough or they aren't trans enough is, is beyond me. And I'm constantly working to dismantle that. And so 
when I meet other non-binary folks and get to talk with them about their journeys to understanding what they truly just needed for them to kind of take out that societal pressure of these are the boxes that we told you had to fit in, but then to really just do the self-work to say, does that actually work for me? Does that really fit? And to be like, you know what? The opposite of that thing you're telling me makes sense. Or, you know, this is aligning for me and that's totally fine too. Uh, so just mazel, mazel, mazel. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I mean, that that to me is one of the trickiest parts of navigating trans existence is all of these expectations that folks have on us based on their limited understanding of what it means to be a trans person, which is like, you know, people that are trans feminine automatically want bottom surgery and automatically want to have like bigger boobs and all all of these expectations of what people expect from someone based on the fact that they're trans is really difficult to navigate because it makes it difficult to know what is just a societal expectation that we have internalized and what is actually something that we want. Oh my gosh, I totally relate and agree to all of that. And that's the thing that I'm actually noticing lately is that I had believed this misconception that I had either already done the work or I didn't even have the work that needed to be done to address internalized homophobia and internalized transphobia. And using those big words, I was like, well, those aren't beliefs that I hold. So obviously that's not something within my being. But then realizing that, hey, we grew up in a very gendered space and a very explicitly cis-het environment where those were the ways in which you were validated. And which parts of what I was told were truths are actually things that I want for myself? Or have I just said it and been forced into it so many times that I believe it as a truth. And so I just relate so, so fully with that. Yeah. And I kind of want to circle back to what you said about like our identity overlap that we share, because we did discuss the fact that we are both Jewish, queer, trans folks who are also non-binary. This is an overlap that I found in a lot of folks, actually, which is unique. Uh, I was in an internship in college where three out of the five people in the room were queer trans Russian Jews. What an incredible environment. <laughs> what an incredible environment, right? I'm fascinated. I, w- I want to learn everything. <laughs> <laughs> it was it was a lot of fun. And I'd, I'd love to hear about how this intersection of identity affected your experience as a trans person, whether or not religion played a really significant role in your experience. I just love to hear, you know, what it was like to navigate that intersection, what it what it's like today. Yeah, absolutely. For me, my my Jewish identity has been one of the longest identities that I've claimed and that I've lived with and lived through and have just been a root part of who I am. And for much longer than my queer and trans identities, which came when I was able to acknowledge those. I have this this belief that when we come out, that's an external process, but folks so heavily relate on coming out as an external process to others versus the coming to the internal process of understanding one's identities and accepting and loving them. And for me, those aspects of my queer and trans identities came later in my life. I'm 23 years old. And it was when I was around 1920 that I was finally able to have the environment and the language to understand my queerness and my transness. And way before that, I was immersed in my Jewish community, in my family being raised Jewish. Those aspects of my identity, my Jewish aspects of identity were a part of me for longer than my queer and trans aspects of identity. And so understanding how identities are constantly being formed, new parts of our existences are being celebrated. And 
I grew up going to synagogue every single week, multiple times a week. My sister and I went to Hebrew school every single, I believe it was Wednesday evening. We would go to services every Saturday. My sister and I shared our B'nai Mitzvah together. So we, we had that really important coming to your adulthood in your Jewish community. We shared that together. And the oddest part for me is that I was always gendered as a woman. I was always understood as feminine in those spaces. And there wasn't the space for me to exist otherwise. And I also didn't have the language to know that being queer or being trans were actual valid identities, were identities that people held and they are still a very active member of society. Whereas in the spaces that and this is getting into a whole other story of the fact that I went to a, quote, all-girls school for 14 years. And so when I talk about being raised and being immersed in very gendered communities, what I'm thinking of is that I'm going to stop saying, quote, all-girls school, but that is exactly what I mean every single time, because obviously not all of us were girls. <laughs> um, but it's also going to get annoying to hear me say, quote, every time. So we're just going to say, <laughs> girl, but we're going to give it like a little stare down. We're a little angry. We're holding a fist. It's not really that. <laughs> if you're listening to this, I expect you to make that little stare down every time that Lex says all girls school, just to like sort of like mimic um, what Lex would be doing oh my God, yeah. if we had the time to put quotes on every every usage of that term. And I will be doing that exact bodily motion every time I say it too. <laughs> it's going to give me the wrinkles and it's fine. Um, <laughs> But yeah, just like being immersed in such a gendered space. And then also I've been doing a lot of self-reflection about my time in Hebrew school and in services and being a part of the Jewish community that I was raised in and how that was also an extremely gendered place. And I'm still working through those feelings and understanding how all the environments that I was a part of have resulted in who I am today and my path in discovering my identities. And the truth is, is that my synagogue was always a safe environment. It was always a family environment. My my rabbi at my synagogue grew up in Northeast Philly with my dad and his two sisters. He was he was friends with my eldest aunt. And so it just always felt like an indistinguishable part of who I was, was connected to my religion. Because not only was it an active physical environment that my family and I were always a part of or constantly engaging in, but also just having such deep roots to our rabbi and to our cantor and the fact that my mom actually converted to Judaism. So my mom was not raised Jewish. She was raised Christian. And she, when she met my father and knew that they wanted to spend the rest of their lives together, she converted to Judaism before they got married so that they could have a traditional Jewish wedding. And my sister and I were then raised solely in the Jewish community as a religious community. And just thinking about all the different ways that these identities and these communities all come together to really create who I am and constantly navigate what those processes were like is forever a very fascinating self-work project that I have going on. (laughs) And actually another thing about being not only queer and trans and Jewish, but talking about my, my name, my name, my dead name was, uh, based off of both one of my grandparents' names and a biblical name. And I was simply just uncomfortable with my dead name. It was an extremely feminine name. I was just so upset. It would just impact me so negatively when I would 
here's someone use my dead name and that happened to be a rationalization for them to use feminine pronouns or she, her pronouns or to use gendered feminine language like woman or girl when that simply wasn't my experience. And so I did end up feeling a lot of discomfort and a significant distance from my birth name, my dead name. But I also knew that when it came time to legally changing my name, which is something that I did, that I wanted to keep my connection to Judaism, which was informed by my parents' names that they chose for me. And so when I was choosing my middle name, it was really important that I chose a Hebrew middle name. And so Pe'er is a Hebrew name. And it, when I was doing my research, I wanted a name that wasn't explicitly masculine or wasn't explicitly feminine. I wanted it to be a neutral name that was just beautiful and still matched what I wanted. My middle name before began with a P and I wanted my middle name when I legally changed my name to also begin with a P, but to hold a meaning that I was able to choose, which is an experience that so many people do not have. And I do believe that as trans folks, we are given this one could say unique experience, not saying that it's a ideal experience to have the pressure of choosing your own name, if that is something that one chooses to do, or maybe not even chooses to do, but you're put in a place where you're like, this name doesn't work for me, so I guess I have to choose a different name. And so I chose Pe'er, and the meaning of Pe'er is luxury, magnificence, gloriousness, and splendor. And it supposedly, based off of the analysis within the Bible, it should be used for folks who, and I am reading this from the website that I chose uh, my name from, represents people who are peacemakers, sensitive, love to please, they hate arguments, tend to mediate complex and sensitive situations, diplomats with high intuition, need love, warmth, and touch. (laughs) And I was like, a lot of those things are truly who I am. This is the name. <laughs> I love that. I love how much thought went into that. And I, I that part you said about, you know, as trans people, we have the opportunity or sometimes the discomfort of having to choose our own name, which gives us a lot of agency that a lot of other people don't have over what we're called. And I, for a lot of reasons, liked my birth name, but it was also highly gendered. And then I got to sit down with my mom and a baby naming book and pick out my middle name together and pick one that I felt like really captured who I was, not who, you know, two people in a room who had just had a baby thought I (laughs) would capture who I was when I was was born. Yeah, Yeah, I think that's really rad. Uh, Yes. And I also, I love the the word that you use, agency, because we are given this agency and... It is unique in the sense that unless my mom reminded me and was like, well, technically when folks get married, they may choose to change their name. I was like, okay, that is true. However, most times those folks, to my knowledge, are not going to be changing their first and their middle name, Yeah, (laughs) which is a different process because so much of our identities, and I totally, I am not trying to come down on my mom. She is totally right. (laughs) Trans people are forced to do this thing that no other people do. And mom was like, well, actually, this legal process is really crappy. And I know because I went through it to take your father's last name. And I was like, okay. So as with many things, the gendered concepts or the sexuality concepts that are harmful to trans and queer folks are also typically harmful for cisgender folks as well, which is why the conversation on queer queer topics is just so important. And it also has that overlap with, okay, well, taking someone's last name is still different than and related to, well, if you're changing your first and your middle name. 
And I love that you were able to sit down with your mom and choose that middle name. And that, that was actually something really important to me was having my, both my parents and my sister's feedback on my middle name because I, I felt very overwhelmed. Yeah. I was like, well, I'm given this opportunity, this agency to choose my name, but I also didn't ask for this. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I'm not going to play should and all that stuff because that is a whole other realm of digging your own grave and (laughs) trying to get out of it. But this idea that, okay, I know that a gender neutral name makes the most sense. And I don't have a gender neutral name. My parents were not in the slightest informed or given the language or the environment to understand that gendered names and gendered language could have XYZ impact on your child if they are not cisgender. And so it was this mix of, oh my gosh, I'm in this place where I get to choose my name. But that also is beyond overwhelming because I never thought, I was never told as a child that I was going to be trans, that I was going to be queer. And then a part of this identity formation for me was that, hey, I actually am really uncomfortable with my feminine name. And that that's a process that I have the agency to be able to change. And my name being such an integral part of my identity and who I am, being able to have that input and that support from my family when I was choosing my name was so important to me. And so I love to hear that you also found it to be important to have your mom involved. Yeah, it it was a really unique experience. I want to talk more with you about this concept of identity formation and this distinction that you make between coming to and coming out on a small tangent. Like one of my favorite parts about doing this podcast is when other transgender, nonconforming, non-binary folks like use a phrase or say something in a certain way that is just like slightly, if not totally fundamentally different from a way that I had forever been thinking about a certain topic. And this distinction that you made was one of those moments for me when I was reading it. Yeah. So I'd love to hear what that distinction means to you, both personally and why it's also an important, more general reframing of a common narrative about identity. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Absolutely. I have been working through this phrase for about like a year now in trying to dismantle all of these roadmaps per se like this like what we were talking about before like this idea that if you're trans and you're trans masculine this is your roadmap or if you're trans and you're trans feminine then this is what you do and in a very similar sense i feel like we're told that when you come out here are the steps to coming out here are the these are the people you tell first this is the language you use to say it this is what you should expect and here are the other things you need to know and just like the sense of choosing our names being different, when we come to our identities or come out, that process, that publicize, that external process of, hey, this is who I am, is typically what we traditionally think of when folks say coming out. They're like, oh, well, did you come out to your family? Or what was it like for you to come out? This heavily focused area of how did you tell other people who you were? Not how did you know who you were? and come to love and accept and cherish that aspect of you. I really feel like the coming out narrative not only is so so predetermined, so based in what was the reaction versus, oh, are are you supported in the ways that you deserve? Or what was your trauma? Were you loved and accepted? And the fact that that's even a question is, I mean, it's a very real question, but it's so disheartening because That means that love is not unconditional. 
if someone can choose to love you based off of how you come out to them or the identities that you share with them. And so I've been doing a lot of self-work and community work, trying to dismantle this idea of why is it so important that we share our coming out stories? And I truly do think it's important that we share our journeys to discovering our identities. But I don't think that that is the same thing as what we traditionally think of as the coming out. And so for me, I found an easy way for me to understand it is to separate the coming out process as an internal process, which I call coming to one's identity, and then the external process, the sharing with others outside of your being, that being the coming out process. Because for me, I really do understand them to be two completely different processes. When I know for myself and I was coming to my identities, that was something that was occurring throughout my entire life, whether I consciously was aware of it or not. Whereas when I was coming out to people, although I did technically come out to my mom without, I was not, <laughs> I did not plan. I did not believe that it was going to happen. That is a whole other very interesting story to share. But for the most part, I feel like the narrative of coming out can happen or most folks claim that it happens in a very planned way. And I guess i just proved that I was wrong to myself because I really didn't plan my coming out to my mom, whereas I planned it with a couple of my other family members. And so even just differentiating like, hey, this process, this external process of sharing your authentic self most likely happens after you have your internal process of understanding who you are and being able to share that in one capacity or another with the world. And you mentioned too that you were in an all-girls school and also Hebrew school, which was a highly gendered environment. And I'm curious to hear what kind of impact being in that type of environment had on your coming to portion of your identity formation process. That is something that <laughs> that I am still trying to piece together some memories, just experiences, and really just think about what I was taught and like where it came from. I I know that I had my first genderqueer gender transcendent memories as a very young child and that I brought that authentic part of myself into all of the gendered spaces I was in. And although I don't have necessarily explicit memories of being uh, invalidated, being shut down, being told that that is not true, I do have some. I can imagine that in these highly gendered spaces, that is exactly what I experienced and why I did repress my identities, why I wasn't able to open up those internal boxes until I was in different environments. And so for, for me, I, I love sharing my different examples of coming to, because I really do think that separately from the external process of coming out, coming to one's identity can also be kind of given a little sub subtitle, subheading, give it a little AB process going on here where you have some of this is happening consciously where you're like, oh my gosh, Am I queer? What does that mean for me? Or am I trans? What does that look like? And the other parts can be very subconscious or can be so anxiety provoking or scary or unfamiliar that you repress those things. And so they do become unconscious until you have to have those memories, those ideas, those aspects of yourself work resurfaced. And so I had a lot of my gender transcendent memories resurface as I was exploring first with my gender expression before I was able to really understand that, no, this doesn't make sense that I'm not a masculine woman. Something about that woman term, it's I'm a masculine, what? Masculine, not woman, masculine, genderqueer person. 
And so that was the external words that I was sharing with folks. But the processes that I was remembering was when I was in pre-K, I was at a play date with a friend from Hebrew school. And at that play date, we had a pair of scissors and I believe she suggested we give ourselves a little hair salon, make-believe play date. And I was on board. We did a little trim, nothing more than a little bit of an inch. My sister was super happy with her haircut. She looked fabulous. And I was like, you know, and my, let me actually preface this by saying my sister and I looked like twins. We are technically Irish twins. We're less than a year apart. And both of us had our hair down to our waist for our entire lives. I didn't cut my hair to the shortcut that it is now until I was in college. And so we were at this play date. My sister got an inch cut off and she was really happy with it. And I said, chop it all off. <laughs> and my, my friend did exactly that. She cut off all of my hair for me. And I could not have been happier. But I wasn't able to understand this experience of identifying long hair with femininity and folks wrongly assuming that I was a girl because I lived in this feminine box. I, as a three and a half year old, four year old, had those unconscious connections to gender and what was being taught to me and said, you know what, that doesn't fit, chop it all off. Or my first year at this all girls school, I just remember I walked in one day, couldn't really tell you what exactly changed within me, but I just told my best friend, I said, hey, Carolyn, I'm a boy, and my name is Lex. She said, great Lex, let's keep reading. Like that was literally just it. I said, I'm a boy, this is my name. And she said, great, what's next? <laughs> and so I have so many experiences where I explicitly identified as anything but a girl and yet was in such gendered environments that I was told that that was not possible. I was told that that isn't who I am and that I needed to fit within these boundaries. And I even remember within the same age range, maybe even a little bit younger, my dad was dressing my sister and I to go and play outside. And he put my shorts on and I ran out the door without a shirt. And he was like, Lex, come back. We're not done getting changed. And I said, boys don't wear shirts. And I ran away from him. And so I didn't know how to communicate like, hey, I don't know where y'all got this idea that like I am going to be this thing that my sister is and she seems happy, but that just really isn't what's going to work for me. And so the ways that my little Lex was able to articulate, able to say, hey, this isn't me was by identifying purposely with things outside of the gendered box of girl or woman, or even if it wasn't explicitly women, the fact that our society misconflates women with femininity as a standard and ideal. I did so much work throughout my elementary school life to distance myself from femininity. I even at very, very strong points in my elementary school told my friends that I was allergic to nail polish as a way to stop getting nail polish as a birthday present because it was something that I either immediately regifted or had no interest in and gave to my sister. I even said that because I was allergic to nail polish, I said that I would throw up anytime I saw the color pink or may have been reversed because I saw pink a lot more and I couldn't fake that nearly as much as I could fake being allergic to nail polish. <laughs> but I explicitly was finding ways to say, you know what society is saying? Like girls are feminine and this nail polish thing and this color pink is supposedly feminine. I'm going to distance myself from these things. I am allergic to nail polish and I will vomit if I see pink. That is my way of communicating to the world. 
I can't possibly be a girl if I don't like the things that all the girls like. And it was just something that was consistently invalidated and corrected wrongly, of course, corrected me back into the box of you're at a all girls school. All of you are female. All of you are girls. All of you are feminine. And all of you are going to be straight or else your lives are going to be hell. So I kept trying to advocate for myself to share what my actual experiences were with my teachers, with my classmates. And I don't really remember a specific point where I just stopped because it got to be too damaging. It got to be too invalidating where I, I wonder if I ever just told myself, maybe life will just be easier if you do what they tell you to do. And I'm crying right now because that is just so deeply upsetting that that is an experience that so many trans folks experience. Well, can we be our authentic selves or will it just be easier to live someone else's life, but in our body, we no longer have control over what those experiences look like. And I can only imagine that when I was in elementary school, I had to make that decision for myself. I I mean, so much of the reason why I talk so openly about who I am and my identities and why I'm in the education realm is to make a world, to work towards this change where this isn't going to be what all trans children's experiences are, where we can be in a world where we can openly communicate our differences and rather than invalidate and erase and shut them down and discriminate or stigmatize, we openly have the language and the environments and the communities to be able to host affirming conversations and be able to truly support folks where they are. That's another really difficult thing was that I I know that my family loves and supports me as my flamboyant, flaming queer self. And the fact that I was in such a gendered environment at my all-girls school and that my Hebrew school environment was just inherently gendered because not only is the Hebrew language gendered as masculine feminine without, unless something has changed and I am unaware having a neutral pronoun or neutral way of existing, those spaces were just gendered in those ways. Mm -hmm. And my parents, they didn't have the language. They didn't know that non-binary people or genderqueer folks or this idea that, of course, you see masculine women or feminine men, but the they also grew up in very much so differently gendered histories and environments as baby boomers, uh, having very different ideas about what a family looks like or what a person's role in a family is. And I am not saying that my family upholds that because we absolutely do not. We dismantle the shit out of that stuff. In our household, Hell no. (laughs) But that's also stuff that I talk with my parents about because it's stuff that they actively are also dismantling in their own heads. Oh, this idea that X, Y, and Z is the case because of these generative existences. We're going through that work together. And so there's a part of me that's like, oh, mom, dad, look at all of these memories that I have of me communicating, whether or not directly to you or to my first grade teacher or to my second grade best friend, or to my pre-K best friend who cut off all my hair, that, hey, something is different here. Like, why, where was the language? Where was the conversation? Like, why, why wasn't I supported in that? And having to remind myself that it's not that they chose to silence and to invalidate me, but it's that they didn't have the language to understand what I was going through as two cisgender heterosexual people. 
they were unprepared to have a gender diverse flaming queer child. Not that they were unprepared to love me because they love me to the depths of their souls, but to be able to even know how that support begins, where that affirmation starts and how to validate versus invalidate in those experiences. That was something that we had to experience together. And so that's also something that I'm constantly reminding myself that, hey, we're doing the education work so we can help parents, we can help guardians, we can help siblings, we can help grandparents, we can help anyone under the sun who is willing to listen to what we have to say to provide those educational materials to talk about how we use language and the impacts it has on affirming or dehumanizing and how that, of course, will lead to mental health disparities within communities that are experiencing such profound forms of invalidation since the beginning of our existences. So I want to talk about your role as an LGBTQ educator and also the way that you tie your mental health and self-care advocacy into that. So can you kind of share just a little bit like a synopsis of the kind of work that you do around those issues in terms of education? Yeah, so my my education work is primarily focused on educating both queer folks and allies. Like I said, anyone who has the interest, which I hope would be everyone, in learning about identities that they don't necessarily share or even learning more about identities that they may have. And so for me, it's providing free educational resources such as lectures, workshops, facilitations, different PDF and Word documents of this is gender-affirming language or here are trans healthcare clinics that will affirm you throughout the United States. For for me, my education work is really focused on getting as many resources on a range of topics that impact the LGBTQ plus community and people, primarily trans folks. And for my advocacy within mental health awareness, for me, that looks like me openly talking about my mental health and what I do to take care of myself and to talk about the just stark differences in mental health experiences within the LGBTQ plus community and compared to straight and cis folks. So for me, it's really important that when I do my education facilitation, I not only bring the language and the terms and the experiences into my workshops, but in order to make it not only relevant, because obviously it's relevant whether or not you have the information on mental health, but to show that, hey, when we use these words, you could be saving lives. Yeah. When we affirm people, you are actively helping them to have stability in their lives. I mean, the truth is that one out of two trans folks will attempt suicide. And that's a statistic that many trans, as trans folks, we are all too aware of. And even the fact that 97% of transgender people have reported being mistreated or discriminated against at work. Even that 50% of trans folks have reported having to teach their medical providers about transgender care. So not only are we experiencing discrimination at work or in school, but we're teaching our medical care providers how to appropriately take care of us. And so, of course, all of these things are going to have an impact on our mental health. When you're in a society that is not only trying to put you into boxes that you may or may not relate to, but you're put in families that may not have the language, the environment to be able to support you. It makes sense that the experienced homelessness in the trans community for folks that do not have support from their family is 45%. But 
when you have folks who are supported by their family, it's down in the 20s. And I just, I, I cannot reiterate more how important it is to talk about mental health in the queer community at large, because looking at comparing the mental health rates to our cisgender or our straight counterparts, there is a statistically significant difference in the rates of poverty, of homelessness, of suicide, of psychological distress, of being able to be involved in a professional world, because how are you supposed to be in a career when you are fighting for housing, when you are fighting for support and to be recognized as who you are. And so when I talk, when I do my presentations, I make sure that, hey, these are, these are the language, these are the terms, these are the things that we need to know. And it's important that you know these things because it is having a real impact on trans lives, on queer lives. And let's talk about intersectionality because you know that when you have folks with intersectional identities, such as being Jewish and trans, if you are raised in a Jewish community where gender is upheld, you're likely experiencing a lot of stigma, a lot of potential trauma from multiple realms of your life, not only from your Jewish identity, but also from, is it possible to be trans because I'm Jewish? Or, I mean, when we look at when we look at Trans Day of Remembrance and we each year becomes the deadliest year yet, and you look at who is experiencing this violence, this violence is so heavily impacting mainly trans femmes of color, trans women who share a racial identity that is also marginalized. And so if we don't look at the intersections of our identities, we wouldn't know that, hey, as a trans woman, not only is this person experiencing potential transphobia and lack of safety or homelessness, poverty, whatever it may be because of her trans identity, but because she's also black or Latino or has a mixed racial identity, that she's experiencing racism and stigma and discrimination on so many fronts. It, I just think it's beyond important to put my educational information in this cultural and historical realm that we're living in, because it does have real impact on the people that I'm here to support and I'm here to love and I'm here to uplift. Yeah. I think one of the most important things that you, you know, said was that it's not just, you know, all right, we learn to shift our language. We learn to shift the way we talk about things because it's just like nice and good for trans people. Like, one of the most important things that cisgender and heterosexual folks need to understand is it's not just we want you to talk things differently because it's nice. We need you to shift the way you understand gender, understand sexuality, because it is truly life or death. Exactly. And I I think intersectionality, like you said, is often this big miss in these discussions. Even with discussions of TDOR, it's usually part of the narrative that Black trans femmes are disproportionately affected by this violence because of the way that racism and misogyny intersect with transphobia. Yeah, But I think it often kind of stops there. It doesn't often take as much of a racial justice lens as it needs to. The narrative is often really incomplete and intersectionality in these discussions is everything I believe there's a quote. It's by Audre Lorde and it goes, My favorite poet. Yes. There's no such thing as a single issue struggle because we do not live single issue lives. Mm. Yes. And that, I try to keep that so on the, the 
the forefront of you know the discussions that I have around this because it is so true. We can't just look at the experiences of queer and trans folks through the lens of transphobia and homophobia because every trans person experiences the world differently based on so many different factors like experiencing houselessness, like lacking family support, like being within communities that are not affirming. And all of these discussions need to be part of our education because they save lives, because people are out here dying from suicide. You know, like you said, trans folks are disproportionately affected by suicide. And it's not because we're so depressed about being trans. It's because the world is often overtly hostile towards our identities. Uh, Yes. That just brings everything to this idea that for whatever reason, that also leads to a lack of support of Mm -hmm. the trans community. That misconception that, oh, well, it must be something inherent in you as trans people that is leading to that very horrific statistic. And the truth is, is that obviously we know that that is simply not the case. It has to do with the fact that we are born and raised in a society that marginalizes us, erases us, ignores us, invalidates us, and actively supports violence against us because we are trans. Yeah. And so this made me think of the DSM used to have being trans as a mental illness. It used to be called gender identity disorder, GID. And finally, in 2012, the American Psychiatric Association took out being trans, right, GID, as a mental health diagnosis and replaced it, or I guess not even replaced it, but decided that, because it's more accurate, a diagnosis of gender dysphoria makes more sense because it's not that being trans is a mental illness. It's that the dysphoria that we experience or the mental health consequences we experience because of the discrimination, harassment, trauma that comes our way simply because we are trans individuals causes us that distress. And so the fact that the American Psychiatric Association made that shift in, hey, we were, we were wrong. We were always wrong, right? This is not a mental disorder, but you know what is wrong? The way that society is treating folks that is resulting in this distress. Yeah. And commonly that distress is understood as gender dysphoria. I think that there's a lot of room to not only understand gender dysphoria as something that for many folks is a shared experience of a discomfort with who they are and how the outside world is either expecting or assuming that they are. But I truly cannot even begin to highlight how important this shift was because although they didn't explicitly say, hey, it's important that the reason we're shifting this diagnosis is because it's not that trans people have a mental illness. It is actually because the way that we treat trans people is so horrific that we are giving them heightened anxiety, heightened depression. We're forcing them into poverty, into homelessness, into situations where suicide seems and feels like the only option. It's not that that is anything inherent in transgender people, but has to do with the fact that it's a consistent experience because of the place our society is in. Yeah. Cheers, queers. We'll get back to the show in just a moment. Before we do, I have a really important favor to ask you. 
I record this production with limited resources right here in the closet, <laughs> literally. So every little bit of support goes a long way towards getting this work out to more people who may benefit from it. I want to take a second to share a few ways that you can help do that. Trans and Caffeinated is now on Patreon, where you can pledge monthly donations. Patron donations are a really important way that this show stays alive. And you'll also get some cool patron perks. If you can't financially contribute, there are still plenty of equally helpful ways that you can help out. You can take a moment to give Trans and Caffeinated a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. You can head to Trans and Caffeinated on Instagram and Facebook and share episode graphics to your story. Or maybe you know somebody who would also enjoy the show and you want to recommend it to them directly. The stories I'm able to share on this show are super important to me. And if they're important to you too, it would be incredible if you could take a moment right now before you go on with the show to complete one of these steps. Thank you sincerely for everything that you do. And now back to the show. Well, this leads back to something that I, I've done a lot of unpacking of what gender dysphoria actually is. And the way that I like to understand and frame gender dysphoria is that it is a result of years of gender trauma. Mm. So people love to go on this whole thing of like, well, if gender is a social construct, then why is gender dysphoria a thing? And like, why do trans people exist and blah, blah, blah. And that's a whole other can of worms that I don't know that we have time <laughs> to open right now. Um, but for me, like gender dysphoria is a root of years and years of gender trauma, of years and years of us being told that because, you know, because I am able to grow facial hair, that that is something that makes me masculine or something that makes me man. And after years of hearing that, it begins to be something that is not just an external societal thing, like we internalize it. It turns into internalized transphobia. It turns into gender trauma that we carry with us. And even if I walk around saying like, yes, I know that there are some women with facial hair that are cis women. And I know that facial hair doesn't make me less of a woman. Years and years of having this narrative reinforced about what makes a man a man, what makes a woman a woman, what are feminine qualities, what are masculine qualities, it sticks with you. Absolutely. And it's really painful. It's it's so painful. And I know based on my experiences, one of the ways that I've understood it is that when we're when I when I'm in gendered spaces and I'm being forced to understand myself in a gendered way that is just unnatural for me, that it almost feels like I have to trade a part of my my heart or a part of my soul in order to simply exist when that isn't an experience that cisgender folks share. And I, I really relate to how you understand dysphoria as this process of dismantling years and years of, of gender-based trauma and gender-based societal ideals and truths that are impacting our ways of understanding our beauty and our truths. I know that for me, it was really difficult for me to finally come to the conclusion that 
top surgery and testosterone were exactly what I needed. Because I knew that, or at least I believed that, if we were in a world where just because someone had a chest or someone had breasts, that they wouldn't automatically be assumed to be women, that I very may well have been comfortable with a feminine chest. But because of our society and the ways that we make assumptions and we act on those assumptions, and those assumptions can be so harmful, it was too detrimental to my mental health for people to consistently be wrongly identifying me as a woman. And one of the things that I could do to protect myself against that was to have a flat chest, to have a masculine chest, because that is one of the visual sing- like signals in our society that says, oh, no chest, masculine. Masculine is associated X, Y, Z. Yeah. And so it was really difficult for me because I said, I don't want to play into these systems. These systems don't make sense. These systems aren't based on anything inherent or natural. Literally, if our society just accepted the fluidity yeah. of identity and experience, I wouldn't have to get my tits chopped off. I could have tits yeah. and I could decide to bind or expose or do whatever I wanted with them when I felt like it. But I also knew that our society, at least in my perspective, and I am an optimistic person, this is very pessimistic, so I want to just preface that this is pessimistic because I do not like it, but that our society simply wasn't there yet. I would have to experience years upon years and maybe even a lifetime of people wrongly identifying me as a woman simply because of my body. And that was something that I knew for my mental health, I simply could not go through. And so for me, knowing that I wanted to have top surgery was the first thing that I knew. I just was very uncomfortable with my chest and how people had wrongly identified me as a woman because of it. And so before I even thought about taking testosterone, I knew that top surgery was an absolute need for me. Yeah. Well, that connects to this idea of gender affirming treatments, be them you know hormones or surgeries as an act of self-care. Oh, absolutely. You know, because you are saying like, this is something that is for whatever reason detrimental to my mental health, whether it is an internal thing or it is that external like society is just not there yet. And I know that because of this, I'm going to continue to be perceived in a way that I don't want to. Sometimes the biggest act of self-care that you can take is by making those those bodily adjustments in the ways that are affirming to you for whatever reason. Absolutely. And I, I, I think that process is so unique to every trans person. Like I, I've gone through this a lot with my bottom surgery process because I wasn't sure that I wanted it. And it took me years to really come to a place where I decided that it was something for me. But that's not something that's understood by a lot of cis folks because... Even cis folks' understanding of trans folks is still rooted in this gender binary that stems from colonialism. These like Christian ideals of gender and like the purity of femininity and the the curves and the softness and the tenderness that goes along with femininity and the caring roles and all these like hyper gendered things that go along with femininity and like being able to bear children and being like sexually submissive and having a vagina and having breasts, like all these things that, you know, are rooted in this binary understanding of what it means to be a certain gender. And it constantly weighs on us. Yeah. And how it's really just so, so entrenched in body politics, in gender policing, in true, like the true system of gender and sex was put into place to 
have women as property. Yeah. To be able to control marginalized bodies yeah. with access to whether it's physical property such as land or literal human beings, which are absolutely not property. And the fact that these ideals, these norms have made it into modern day history, it is exactly what is happening. And for me, as someone who has done a lot of work to understand that there have always been more than two genders in the same way there have always been more than two sexes. And all you have to do is look into the history books to look into different cultures and different societies. And to even if you open up an accurate American history book and learn about the genocide and the policing of bodies that were non-white bodies, you understand why our Western culture upholds very rigid, very misogynistic, racist, every honestly negative thing I can think about in the ideals is simply to be able to control marginalized identities, marginalized bodies, marginalized communities. And that is simply not something that I am ever going to support. And I'm doing the work every single day to dismantle and to bring the, the real history to folks saying like, hey, these cultures, these identities, these concepts are really nothing new. The thing that happened was that we were lied to. We were told that this is what is best, that this is the way it is, and that this is how it's always been. Yeah. But that is just not the case. Yeah. And I also want to not acknowledge like the the work to dismantle that is really heavy work. It is really emotional labor. And it brings us back again to this point of self-care. And I'm curious to hear what self-care looks like for you while you are navigating not only being a queer trans person, but also being a queer and trans educator, dismantling all these ideas and oppressive notions, not just for yourself, but f- but for others. What does self-care look like for you? Uh, self-care is something I'm actively working on <laughs> continuing to do because it is a part of my being that I put other people before myself. I yeah. love to take care of others, to support others. and Animals, fur babies. Oh my gosh, my fur babies. Exactly. I circled and- that at the beginning. I was like, I'm going to come back to this point that Lex was just like, I wrote called to help others in quotation marks and this idea that like you've always been a caretaker you've always been someone who puts people or other creatures first yeah that's so true and (laughs) it really has just it it is just who I am I don't necessarily understand it but it's also not important that I do because that is simply who I am as a human on this planet and so for me giving myself to others is my preference and so when I'm told like hey you know you should actually be taking care of yourself too (laughs) <laughs> and how important it is to actually be able to take care of yourself. Yeah. It doesn't even matter what type of work you're doing. But I mean, like we're talking about like the the emotional burden of dismantling all of these very damaging concepts. And a lot of the work that I do is to engage in challenging conversations, to talk with folks who adamantly disagree with me, to try and get open dialogue. And so I have decided I have been putting a more consistent self-care routine into my life, which I (laughs) highly recommend to folks because it's a great way to hold yourself accountable for taking care of yourself. And so daily, what that looks like for me is having a routine. I'm someone who thrives when I have consistency, when I know what is coming next. The idea of uncertainty is something that has been a catalyst for a lot of my mental health in the past and in the present. And so simply having a routine in the morning, knowing that when I wake up, I get ready, I do the litter boxes, I give my kitties their food, and then I give each of them their respective medications. And then what do I do? 
And although that sounds maybe like not, not really like self-care because it's like, you're just doing your routine. Like for me, I'm like, I'm taking care of myself. I'm making sure that my space is clean. I'm making sure that my babies have everything that they need to have a good day. And then I get to have moments throughout my day where I spend a certain amount of time with each of my kitties. So whether that's having them sit on my chest as a compression blanket or (laughs) saying little love coos to them as they're resting in their beds, or unfortunately, more often than not these days, finding little pieces of fecal matter and being like, let me clean that up for you. (laughs) (laughs) The things we do for our cats. Oh my God. Yeah, truly the things we do for our cats. But I just (laughs) know that like, oh my gosh, I... My kitties are certainly a form of my self-care. Yeah. Whether that is just being in their space or getting to pet them or listen to their purrs. Uh, <laughs> and that's a daily occurrence that truly is my the way that I power myself up for the day, get myself ready to do dinner, anything I need. I'm like, you know what? Am I overwhelmed? I think I need a lady on my lap. <laughs> Am I feeling so overwhelmed that I'm having a system overload? I need Sabu to sit on my chest and crush me. <laughs> I These are the things that I need. And my cats, my fur babies are there to support me in those ways. And then other ways that I do my self-care are, I try to at least once a week, maybe once every two weeks, paint my nails. And I find that to be a very therapeutic experience, both just the process yeah. of painting my nails. And then also the fact that I look freaking fantabulous afterwards. I'm just like, you know what it's doing? It's a little boost in the confidence and it's just the act of the process itself. <laughs> yeah. So I guess you overcome your uh, allergy to nail polish that you told oh, me that you had. Yeah. Oh, I, <laughs> I overcame that in <laughs> such a glorious way when, and it was interesting too. This is, such an interesting idea that I really upheld personally this concept of masculinity that was very traditional masculine. Well, I will wear pants and a button shirt. And that means that my hair will be short and I, my mannerisms are bro. Like, <laughs> like these are the things that like, if, if I'm going to have this chest and I'm not going to have masculine hormones and I have to constantly be performing this masculinity simply to be understood as masculine, then this I I don't have access to femininity. Pink can't be my favorite color because if if I say pink, then they're gonna wrongly. So going back honestly into the same headspace is when I finally came to my queer identities, being so scared of being misidentified or invalidated that I was forced back into a binary box. But then as I got my top surgery, as I was on testosterone, and I started to finally live in and as the person that I am in the body that is mine, I realized, oh, you're dead. Like you are certainly masculine, right? Like you identify with masculinity, but there is just this, as I will say again, flaming aspect of my identity that I simply, simply, and I am moving, you don't even understand how much I'm moving my hands and my neck is like, just need a little bit of stretching after how much I'm moving it right now. (laughs) There's something about my energy I've decided is just very feminine. Or maybe yeah. it's my essence. I, I'm sure that I'm going to find other words that will describe my relationship to masculinity and femininity, maybe in clearer and more kind of the aha moment ways. But the way that I currently have it is it's my energy as a masculine person who's also feminine. 
And so when I finally was able to realize now people are not wrongly identifying me as a woman, they're wrongly identifying me as a gay man. Yeah. And neither of those are true because I identify as queer and non-binary. Yeah. But nonetheless, being ident- misidentified, right, still is not correct as a man means that folks are visibly understanding my masculinity. Yeah. Which may or may not have to do with the fact that I had top surgery, that I'm on testosterone. I certainly believe that those are the cases. And it also gave me this room to be my feminine self, to have my mannerisms be what they are and my voice intonations do their thing and to hair flip as many times as they want and to (laughs) say, you know what, with my as many hand motions and snaps that need to come when they need to come. And I found that beauty in finally being identified as masculine, still being misidentified as a man, but that identification as, oh, you're a masculine person and that's what I'm picking up on by assuming what, what your identities are. I'm like, you know what? You got the masculine part right. Amazing. You're actually <laughs> now giving me the space to be immersed in my femininity too. And so I did indeed get over my my being allergic to nail polish and throwing up anytime I saw it. <laughs> Especially actually this, I'm not sure if you've heard of, there's a brand called Trans Guy Supply and I absolutely love them. They are a trans run and own small business that is primarily catered to the trans mass community. And they asked me to partner with them to produce a nail polish named after me. That was within the past two years, year and a half. And I still was very much so in my masculine self in feeling con constrained potentially by, well, if I start being my feminine self, is society going to continue to misidentify me? But we just did all of these body modifications to have that not happen. So what's nail polish going to do to it? (laughs) And I just got to this point where they're like, we want to name a nail polish after you. And it's a pink nail polish. And I was like, you know what? Great. This is going to be a great way for me. (laughs) And we're going to get, we're going to get both of these gendered experiences in a positive lens with a nail polish that is pink that is named after me. Amazing. <laughs> and so now there's a pink nail polish called Lex Factor that I use. Oh my, that's a great name too. <laughs> right? I was like, they're like, you get to name it. And I was like, oh, I have a couple of ideas. And I was like, Lex Factor, both because X Factor being the factor everybody wants. <laughs> and <laughs> that it's a play on like mix. So like as I'm Mix Horowitz and having that like X being very emphasized as yeah. the gender-free identity uh, and even working to identify colors as these colors have no gender. They never have, they never <laughs> will be, but what they do have are societally constructed gendered notions that are telling us that it should be this way, but we're really just talking about expression. So my self-care has actually become an active way that I am working to unteach and dismantle the ways in which I had to, in a very confined way, communicate who I was and what my identities were with people. And I found ways to bring them back into my life in a positive way, which is honestly just so beautiful because it's not that common that I'm able to get closure on a lot of experiences that I'm having. And I felt as if this was one of the only instances in my life where I was really able to come full circle. Yeah. Something interesting my best friend said to me recently who came out as trans mask not too long ago was, um, Ariel, I just want to be masculine enough so I can feel comfortable being feminine again. Yes. (laughs) 
And I just find that so fascinating. And like, it, it, it leads back to that idea that you're bringing up earlier of dismantling roadmaps, dismantling gendered expectations of people, dismantling this idea that there's like any one way to experience a trans identity, to experience gender, because those ideas are just so simply untrue and so limiting. I didn't transition just so I could be boxed into femininity the same way that I was boxed into masculinity for my entire life. I, I just, I don't, I don't want that. That's not that's not the life that I want for myself. Yeah. So thank you so, so much, Lex, for making the time to chat with me today. Do you have any words of wisdom that you'd like to share before we close out? Yes, the one, a couple of things I want to share. Yeah. Is a message that I want to leave folks with is that there is no right way to exist. There's no such thing as being trans enough in the same way as we were talking about. There's no roadmap to your non-binary or to your trans identity. And I just want folks to know that you don't have to have language. You don't have to have labels that perfectly align at any point in time or ever. You don't ever have to have this, this language, but it's here for us if we want to use it to help us find similar others, to help us find community and affirmation with folks that share those aspects of ourselves. And this idea that you have to know who you are at a certain point in time or that someone is too young to understand who they are. Just the hypocritical nature of everything that we are told, you're either too young to know or you're too old and you've lived this life. Why would you, quote, change? We're not changing. Now is just this work of you are who you are. You get to use whatever language, whatever terms work for you. And it's so valid if none work for you or if you want to just say, fuck all of that. I don't like the idea that we socially constructed these terms in the first place and you're trying to make me go into these boxes again. I just want folks to know that there is no right way to understand yourself, to come to love yourself, to come to then share who you authentically are with the outside world. We're all on our own journeys, on our own path. And I strongly believe that this is a journey I will be on for my entire life. I believe that identity and existence is fluid, that if I were to claim a static identity, I would be limiting myself to the most beautiful parts of human existence and being a part of this world. Honestly, it may even be great to be so critically thoughtful about the language and the terms that we're using to make sure that we don't put ourselves back into these boxes that we're actually trying to get out of. And that whoever you are, wherever you are in your journey, you are so valid. You are so worthy you do have you have nothing to prove to anyone you have everything to prove to yourself in how you love and support and cherish yourself and your journey is yours and yours only and where can people go uh to find you online or support your work where can they access your resources yeah so i am on instagram tiktok and twitter at lex underscore horowitz so that's spelled L-E-X underscore H-O-R-W-I-T-Z. I want to reiterate my name is Horowitz with a single O because that is something that is always <laughs> spelled and I am over it. So I'm going to spell it out every time now. <laughs> Thank you. Um, but yeah, so Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, I'm also on Facebook. I have a community group call or a community page called Mix Lex Horowitz, all the same spelling. And you can also, if you are interested in engaging in a affirming 
loving community of like-minded folks. I have a community on Patreon and you can, so Patreon is spelled P-A-T, oh, I'm going to spell it wrong. P-A-T-R-E-O-N. <laughs> and you can find me on Patreon at Lex Horowitz, or you can even search Mix Lex Horowitz. And that is a platform that I use to very consciously cultivate a, a, a supportive and affirming community. It's where I share behind the scenes of different projects I have going on or a lot. I had a Hanukkah unboxing with the kitties where I took <laughs> videos and pictures of them opening their chewy presents. And I shared that with that community. And that's a way for folks to, and I have tiers ranging from $1 to $30. I have like a one, three, five, 10, 15 range. And that's a way for folks to get behind the scenes access or get to be on my close friends list on Instagram. And just, it's a way for folks to not only get to be a part of my life in more intimate ways, but also for me to be able to share myself in those ways with others while they are providing me the financial stability to be able to create free resources that are available to all who aren't able to join my Patreon. So I use it as a, a funding way to be able to continue to produce the work and the educational materials that I do for folks that need access to those materials for free. And then also the last thing I will say is that I do have a website, which is lexhorowitz.com. And so for any folks that are interested in learning more about me and my advocacy, my mission, I also host a series of urgent need programs. I also have a list of small queer trans owned shops where we should be putting our money in this capitalist mm -hmm. world because we need to be supporting those in our community in every way, shape and form that we can. And it's another way where folks can make donations to my work through my website. And so I highly recommend checking that out because all of my educational resources are on my website for free. Rad. Awesome. Thank you so much. And all of that information will also be in the show notes for this episode. Uh, so if you missed any of that, you can click the links there. Thank you so much, Lex, for making the time to chat with me today. Do you have anything you want to add? Uh, the one thing I am going to say is, should I bring Miss Sabu up to see if she's going to purr? Oh my God. Yeah. Pets and yeah. caffeinated, y'all. Pets Life, and everything. caffeinated. Everything. Oh, Sabu. Yeah, <laughs> I'm for you. Oh, here we go. Hi, Angel. <gasps> All right. We got to get the, we got to get the purrs going. Yo, sweetness. I got to wake you up. Oh, I know. <laughs> sleep. Deep sleep. I'm going to give you kisses. I'm going <laughs> to nibble on your ear. This is actually a teaser trailer now for Pets and Caffeinated. <laughs> <laughs> Truly. Oh, my God. And also, I don't know how to, you know what? Of course, she's like, I'm on camera. So, no. Um, <laughs> but at some point in time, it's okay, sweetness. I know. I just demanded a lot of you and you were not ready. <laughs> oh, my God. Well, I... Sorry, <laughs> because she's now just sitting on my lap and that's that's all we got she's half awake half asleep not really sure what is going on um but i will make sure to to put content out on my pages of my my perfect little fur babes doing their little melodies of purrs yes please i live for it yes <laughs> <laughs> that's all for today folks don't forget to subscribe to and review this podcast so you can stay up to date on the latest episodes. If you feel inclined to support this work financially, you can head to patreon.com slash transandcaffeinated. You can follow my personal accounts on Twitter and Instagram at Ariel R. Gordon 
And you can follow at Trans and Caffeinated on Instagram and Facebook. Now it's time for credits. We love credits. You can follow the show's editor and opening music composer, Joey, on Twitter at Nora Q. Rosa. You can find her band, Fempathy, on both Facebook and Twitter at Fempathy Band and on Bandcamp at fempathy.bandcamp.com. You can follow the show's closing music composer, Helena Drajanski, on Instagram at thegayagenda95. You can follow her music on Instagram at Helena Ford Project and on Bandcamp at helenaford.bandcamp.com. You can also find her work featured in the Transformations Marketplace on transandcaffeinated.com. I'll see you in two weeks on the next episode of Trans and Caffeinated. <laughs> <laughs>